Welcome to what the if where sometimes you wake up on the right side of the world. Sometimes you don't. I don't know what the wrong side of the world would be, but it sounds like a severe, uh, that'd be a bad outcome for your night's sleep. Uh, Gabby and uh, Matt are both here. Um, we begin with uh, Gabby, Gabby Panicia from Rockefeller University. How are you this morning? Also, I am by doing the way, good. To, a note to our listeners we record in the morning. So uh, that's what's happening. Um, is it, how is everything on? Is 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 your campus completely back to normal? It seems like I went away. I, was, I happened to be away when the mask mandates ended in New York, and so I came back to a completely different world. How is it's kind of back to normal-ish. Like we've definitely taken a lot of efforts to sort of de-escalate. Like you don't have to wear masks anywhere except for in lecture halls when you're all gathered together for stuff. Um, most people still do wear masks anyway. Um, but they opened the faculty club back up again, which has been great. Right. Uh, they opened a lot of the cafeteria for like indoor dining and stuff like that. So you can actually sit in the cafeteria with your friends and have lunch. Um, so things oh, are definitely wow. coming back to normal more. Plus just like the plant life is coming to life at Rockefeller. Like there's a lot of, you know, flowers and stuff like that. Like it's a very pretty campus. So like I can literally feel the seasonal depression leaving my body <laughs> like as I just walk on campus. Uh, that's awfully nice. That is, it is, and nobody knows about it. Very, very, very few people know about Rockefeller. Yeah, it's like this wonderful oasis, um, bucolic oasis. Right it really in, is. In the, in the middle of one of the densest parts of the city, just uh, a little bit north of the United Nations, um, which also is a wonderful oasis. Mm -hmm. but, uh, Matt Stanley, how are, in Washington Square, a, a bit of an oasis, a different kind. A little bit more urban. Uh, yes, that's right. And better known, too. So we get a steady stream of tourists and drug dealers um, <laughs> true, true. Uh, coming through. Uh, and it's also very haunted. So we get a, 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 um, a good number of ghosts and um, revenants. That's true. Yeah. Deeply haunted. It is, a, mm -hmm. uh, it, is a, it is a graveyard. Yep, it is a mass grave. Yeah. A mass grave underneath there. So uh, uh, a mass grave underneath uh, an actual mass grave. And above... Perhaps a mass grave for uh, um, songs remaining in uh, perfect pitch. A lot of buskers uh, could be. Yeah. there, mm -hmm. and uh, the level of quality goes up and down, although it was actually quite good at times. Um, boy, I've completely derailed our conversation. That's what happens in the morning. That's what mm -hmm. happens in the morning. What the if in the morning? Um, sipping coffee here. Mm. The if this morning is uh, brought to us by, um, once again, some life experiences uh, I had uh, just recently. I, I've been attending a wonderful conference called Science Talk 22, uh, Science Talk Apostrophe 22, uh, as in 2022. Um, science Talk, sciencetalk.org, by the way, is a wonderful organization for um, science communicators. And one of the people who runs it is our friend, uh, Dr. Kiki. Kirsten Sanford, who's been on our show a number of times and who's the host of um, one of the longest-running science podcasts, so long it began as a radio, a public radio show called This Week in 
science. Mm -hmm. And anyway, sciencetalk.org is a great organization that I belong to. If, if, if you're listening and you are a science communicator and you're looking for uh, other groups to uh, be a part of and uh, get uh, some enrichment and camaraderie and all kinds of other stuff going on, I, I do recommend it. Um, I've been attending it virtually this week, and uh, but it, it gave me um, an idea for an if. Uh, Matt, have you ever, have either of you ever attended a, or been a yeah, I guess attended any kind of science communication conference or groups or things like that. Uh, yeah, it has happened on occasion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've um, attended regular conferences, which involve a lot of science communication, but never one explicitly for science communication. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Matt, how would you, for those who have no idea what I'm talking about, just so, just so we're clear, what, is, what does this mean, science communication? What, if, what would a bunch of science communicators be doing? Oh, so... Um, scientists are really good at talking to other scientists, and they have special tools to make that efficient, things like jargon and technical terms and fancy graphs and things. Um, but it turns out that those tools are often not great for expressing scientific ideas to non-scientists. So um, it's been recognized in recent years that um, the, the problem of explaining science to non-scientists is its own thing. It's its own communication problem that requires special kinds of approaches and ideas and methods. Um, so these are folks who get together and um, talk about how to do that uh, more effectively. Yeah, and it's kind of what we do. There's there's interesting number interesting amount of um, podcasters attending this conference as well. So we sort of do it. Um, and it gave me an idea, which was basically, I was listening to a particular, uh, one of the main uh, speakers yesterday was uh, from the AAAS, and I did not realize that the AAAS uh, has a, uh, it's a study or some kind of program they got, they've had going since the 90s, very long time, uh, about science outreach to, quote, faith communities, so, you know, huh. to religious communities. And, stuff. and it was actually all about how you know, the developments in that area and how, how much things have uh, improved in, to a large degree, uh, how, how much integration there is now between faith communities uh, and science communication. Uh, the pandemic helped that a lot, but, you know, originally it's been going on a long time. Nonetheless, it just gave me an idea. And that was, mm -hmm. what if, you know, what if you woke up, this would be kind of the ultimate, the ultimate challenge, the boss level for a science communicator is what if you woke up in a society where they had not ever encountered science before? Science had not yet been invented. And so I ask, what the if? You poor sap. You human of the 21st century really woke up on the wrong side of the calendar into a pre-science society. What if you woke up in a pre-science society? I really hit the music just right there. Mm-hmm. That's definitely the appropriate it. amount, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if we could choose... My model for this is uh, the story... Um, is it by Mark Twain, a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court? It is indeed. Yep. Mark Twain. Uh, Gabby, have you ever read King? Have either of you read that? No. Nope. 
Matt, are, are you familiar with that? Uh, I am familiar with it. Yeah. Could um, you help help us? Uh, oh, so um, uh, the. Uh, it's a, a hand wavy time travel story. So the protagonist um, goes to sleep in Connecticut one day um, and wakes up, as the name suggests, in the Middle Ages in King Arthur's court. Um, and he has uh, zany Twain style adventures adapting to his new um, environment and brings back his um, uh, knowledge of modern firearms and gunpowder uh, to essentially destroy medieval society um and uh it's uh, and then i believe if i remember right at the end he goes to sleep and wakes up back in the present too um yeah. and there are no paradoxes perhaps it's there are no clean. paradoxes a little early for time travel paradoxes exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. well like a, like a good sitcom he knows mark twain knows to just button it all up at the end so that the episode is totally self-contained yes um but uh if we were to wake up in a pre any of the many, many pre-science societies that we could wake up in, um, Matt, you are a historian of science at New mm -hmm. York University. And um, so, so I defer to you. What, uh, for this particular thought experiment, mm -hmm. what society would, uh, would you like to wake up in? Um, let's see here. So this, is, um, the, this kind of inquiry is a good way to get an argument started in a room full of historians of science, I should say, uh, because what, it, um, what we have to implicitly do is define what science is uh, so we can pick a society that does not have that thing. Um, and that turns out to be trickier than you might expect. So the Middle Ages, for instance, would we say that's a non-scientific society? Well, they don't have laboratories and experimental methods, um, but they have sophisticated astronomy. They have people investigating the natural world in a rigorous way. Um, so those are certainly at least proto-scientific ideas. Um, uh, you know, people who take a Stone Age tribe that knows how to pick plants that make them sick or might or uh, make them better um, and would we say that's a kind of proto-scientific work too maybe um, so all that to say it's it's not uh, quite as easy uh, as you might expect um, yeah. uh, especially since we want to pick some kind of recognizable society too so we don't want to um, you know insult people by saying well we'll go to new jersey because they don't have science there or something right that's not <laughs> quite actually the do. liberty science center just just so i can stop some of the letters from New Jersey. Liberty Science Center is one of yeah. the places. So. Yeah, um, so yeah New Jersey. Yeah. Sorry, say, we should here. probably start then by defining what we mean by science in this. If, if ah. this will pick a fight in a, in a group of science historians, we should mm. probably at least define our parameters of the fight we're picking. Yes, that is a good idea. <laughs> okay. um, so, uh, uh, like I said, it's not easy. Um, but we can start off by listing, you know, the, the characteristics we might want from a, a modern scientific group. Yeah, the thing I was imagining was mm -hmm. sort of, yeah. um, you know, a place where the stories of the gods, for instance, um, are, in my mind, I was thinking a little bit of like ancient Greece or something. So the story of the gods are taken literally. I, I, I assume that's how the people felt about it. And then there was no sort of alternate... Um, philosophy or concepts, you know, it was sort of like, that's how it is. Um, does that make sense? Like, um, the, it, Yeah, it, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find um, a society that did that. Interesting. Um, but so, for instance, but things like, you know, the, the kind of work that 
Gabby does in the the lab every day um, is based on the idea that um, experimentation gives us important information about the world, um, that we use specialized tools like microscopes, um, that specific training in science is a useful thing that we should have. Right? Right. Um, and those are things that were not true in ancient Greece, for instance. So it's not like the Greeks were religious fundamentalists or something. Um, and they had lots of sophisticated thinking about the world. Um, uh, they had mathematics, but they didn't have experimentation, for instance, um, or the idea that you should have special training to do study of the natural world would also have been very strange to them, too. Right. So I'll you say observation has always been in the scientist's toolkit for basically mm -hmm. as long as we've been humans, we've been looking at stuff and eventually people find patterns. Yeah. Um, and so while like, you know, if Phil was saying like stories of the gods and spirits and whatnot, oftentimes were used to explain natural phenomena, but they were phenomena that were ob observed by humans um, and that we kept essentially some sort of oral record of and tried to develop an explanation for. Actually, that's an interesting part of it. It's almost like, yeah, just the, I guess what I have in mind is sort of the mindset um, so that it's, it's a society in which the notion, the idea of saying, hang on a second, let's actually put aside any preconceived explanations we've been given and see if we can just figure this out ourselves. Is it, let's test things, right? Um, and uh, Matt, you'd, before the show, you were mentioning pre-Babylonian society? Yeah, so, uh, so the what Babylonians are, are a good example of um, what we're talking about right now in the, right. the difficulty of um, finding a crisp definition of science. So the Babylonians observed the world really well, and they, took, they kept really careful records about things uh -huh. like eclipses and natural phenomena. Um, but then, and they did want to understand them, so they observed them, they looked for explanations, they looked for novel explanations. But their explanations were often what nowadays we would think of as divine or supernatural. So that gets complicated. So they were clearly really good astronomers, um, but the explanations they came up with were not the ones that we would accept as scientific today. Um, so, uh, so that's um, uh, so that's tricky, right? That's not. So, so if you woke up in that, would this be in a place called Babylon? Uh, well, we could. So Babylon was a city. Yeah. So we could right. we can go to Babylon if you want. It's a nice place. Yeah. yeah. So we go to Babylon, and Babylon, <clears throat> is that in Iran? Uh, Modern-day Iraq. Modern-day Iraq. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, wow, here's a really dumb American. Uh, as an American, I confess missing this piece of geography. Is Babylon still there? Um, it is. It is not inhabited anymore, but you can go visit it. Oh, um, okay. Cool. There's not much to, to see unless you're digging into the ground. Um, right. But interestingly, actually, weirdly, if you the, the most intact bit of Babylon is in Berlin um, at oh. the big museum in the center of the city there. They have the old gates of Babylon, uh, which are pretty cool to visit. Oh, wow. Okay. Hmm. Fascinating. So, uh, so you wake up in, in the, the glory days of Babylon? Mm -hmm. or sure. And so what year are we talking about here? Oh, let's pick um, uh, 3000 BC. Three, okay, fantastic. We'll just be arbitrary. Yeah. Right. Which, by the way, happens to be, isn't that also around the time Stonehenge was built, I believe, on the other side? Of the uh, roughly, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So 3000 BC, this is fantastic. Wake up in Babylon, and the gates are where they should be. That's right, and not people, in Berlin. Yeah. Not in Berlin, and uh, 
And uh, people are, I imagine, huge throngs of people um, perhaps wearing robes. Yeah, it's and elbow to elbow going through um, not straight streets. Um, <laughs> right, it's an intensely urban environment, but not at all planned. Uh, maybe if you wandered to a particular spot, you would see the famous hanging gardens, uh, which we don't precisely know what they look like, oh, wow. um, but were some kind of horticultural um, uh, mystery. Um, yeah. You know, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Yeah. This is super cool. I'm very excited, actually, to have woken, mm-hmm. to, to have woken up with you uh, here in Babylon somehow. And we're doing the podcast, so we're, <laughs> we're sitting around. Uh, um are there camels? I, I imagine there's camels. Lots of I don't camels. know if camels were domesticated by then or not. Um, ah. They might be later. Right. Um, okay. And and as I think I've mentioned before on the podcast is I have a complicated history with camels, so I'd be totally fine <laughs> if we just leave them to the side. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right. So now um, you're going to you're going to introduce some some kind of. Uh, you're a science communicator. You're a science communicator. Yeah, that's right. So let's do let's do something important. Actually, um, okay. Gabby, can you teach the Babylonians about germ theory? Because that's going to save a lot of lives if you can persuade oh, yeah. them that that's real. Yeah, it's funny. So I, this is the thing that I feel like I've thought about a couple of times. Maybe just because yeah. I have an overactive imagination, but <laughs> it is a lot of the things that essentially one of the weird things if you're looking at history or like history of plagues and stuff like that is you know, there's so many different origins of what people might have been suffering from as far as disease goes that sometimes mm-hmm. it's complicated if I tried to explain, yeah. you know, virus versus bacteria. You know, some of these have weird host cycles. So why are people getting sick now? Um, so complication aside, germ theory just as a concept is probably easier to say that, oh, there's bad stuff in, in X. Um So I will say that, you know, people throughout history have been pretty good about kind of realizing eventually that Maybe this is coming from somewhere. Um, people have put reasons on it, like, oh, this is a plague from the gods. But at the same time, people do eventually figure out, like, hey, this person is sick. I tend to get sick if I'm helping out this sick person. I'm going to avoid the person that is sick. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the harder parts, though, is, you know, is still medicine, right? Um, right. So you mm-hmm. can basically tell people, you know, normal stuff of, hey, give someone water, make sure that they're um eating um you want to be sanitary i guess sanitation is is kind of a novel one most people didn't wash their hands um Mm -hmm. so boiling rags stuff like that um alcohol to sanitize wounds probably going to be like a biggie um but there's not too much that you can really do i i feel like to to maybe like i don't know because i mean you can kind of explain hey this person is sick if you are around them, they will make you sick. Mm-hmm. But at a certain level, there's not much you can do with that. Like, I, I feel like it's one of these things where, you know, we've talked a lot in the last year about the pandemic of, of how much modern medicine has changed dramatically in the last hundred years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, from between, you know, now and say the 1918 flu pandemic when we didn't even know what viruses were. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, a lot of modern medicine still can't do all that much. <laughs> or if it can, it's it's, it's in the way of you know, really complicated interventions. Um, like, I don't think, you know, I, they'd be able to put someone on a ventilator in ye old Babylon. Well, um, and that's, yeah, so this is part of what we want to, to think about, I, I think, is that you can probably convince people not to drink water with poop in it. Right. Yeah, that's, that seems that, fair. That, that seems reasonable, right? 
convincing people that the reason for that is because there are invisible organisms in there uh, that will get inside your body and then start reproducing and make you sick is is a little trickier. Um, so uh, we might say something like, well, um, maybe I'll build a microscope. Um, and then one side of the microscope, I can show them the bacteria, and then they will be persuaded. Um, uh, so anybody know how to build a microscope? I certainly don't. Although some scientists, well, some scientists I know do, mm-hmm. but I know they're very complicated microscopes they know how to build. Okay. So I don't know if okay. any of us would know how to grind the glass appropriately mm-hmm. to get a good microscope. Okay. Um, I should say I do know how to grind the glass. This is actually a, a skill that I have I have picked up thanks He's to a, a witch. He's a witch. <laughs> well, there's something to that. Um, uh, thanks to a, um, a strange Russian man um, from Saint Petersburg who taught me how to do this back when I was a, a young person. Um, but um, actually, I'm ta- knowing I'm, how to... I'm tagging that for future <laughs> <laughs> research. Uh, yeah, that's fine. There's definitely some interesting things to be said about this guy. Um, Uh, So I can grind the glass, but I can't make the glass uh, because modern optical quality glass is really sophisticated and hard to make. So they have glass in Babylon, um, but it's opaque and brittle and not uniform. So I actually can't grind it to to do that. Um, So we need to bring back with us, I don't know, a manual on glass making, I guess, um, which wouldn't be so bad. Uh, But then we need a... um, uh, a kiln that can get hot enough to melt sand into glass in the first place. Um, and that's not a thing that the Babylonians know how to do. So we also need to kind of invent metallurgy um, so we can build this. Uh, so we so can at this point, we're going to be yeah. making a, a fortune as the expert glass makers mm-hmm. and sole metallurgists of Babylon, regardless of whether or not we teach science. Yep, that's I think that's right. <laughs> so that would be pretty. <laughs> so that's that's not so bad, right? Um, I'm not sure if uh, a life of luxury in Babylon is is worth pursuing. That is, I'd rather be here sitting on the couch <laughs> eating potato chips than to be a king right. in Babylon. But. That's just me. Yeah, I was thinking the hanging gardens sound pretty cool. So maybe if I had, if mm-hmm. I could have my own hanging garden, you know, if you're rich enough, you could probably make it pretty great. Yeah, it'd be um, worth a visit. Right? Yeah, it's a great place to visit. Uh, you wouldn't want to stay there. Um, now, one thing I'm I'm taking back here is I noticed that your approach to introducing science uh, is is good in the sense it's like, well, let, I want to show them something. So you know, mm-hmm. that's like that's a way to access this thing. Um, I think though that if, what if you just wanted to begin to get them to think along a way that's gonna lead them to the whole method of, of, uh, for instance, it comes back to observation, right? You're gonna have to, um, the the fact that something, there's always gonna be stuff, something that's invisible. And it strikes me actually that, I don't know, getting them to, trying to get them to to believe something that, look, there's something in here and it's invisible. They're believing invisible things all the time. I mean, like, Mm -hmm. you know, most of their whole way of thinking about everything is invisible. So that may not be the biggest problem. It's it's more a matter of, um, um, like, if they have these myths, right? How do you be, b- give them something that's not that? 
without um, actually having to go to all the you know the later work of actually well you could literally build the whole scientific apparatus and then yeah yeah and this is um it's really hard to get people to not believe things all right um uh, particularly myths so um nowadays if you know, somebody like Gabby wants to show that an idea is wrong. She'll design an experiment um, and have a clear hypothesis and and suggest uh, what what data would convince her that her, her hypothesis is wrong. Um, but in ancient Babylon, no one knows what a hypothesis is. Um, the category of experiment is not a thing. Right? This is a, 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 a tough thing for people to wrap their head around sometimes, yeah. is that experimentation is not a natural way to investigate the world. Um, it's uh, and Because observation is not the same as experimentation. Trial and error is not the same as experimentation. Uh -huh. um, if you had gone back to Aristotle and showed him an experiment, he would shrug his shoulders and say, well, what the hell do I care? You, you built some weird machine and your weird machine did something that machines do. That doesn't tell me anything about nature. So the idea right. that contrived specific experiments can teach us larger things about the world is not generally accepted until the 17th century. Um, uh, and it is accepted in some places and not others. And I should note that what Matt's bringing up is actually still in kind of a hot argument in biology right now, even in, you know, the year 2022, because, you know, what do you have more faith in? a sort of more crude experiment that keeps more of the natural conditions or a, an extremely tightly controlled thing in a system that's super contrived to try to rule out all variables. It's like how much of what you're actually seeing is an artifact of the process you're using to try to discover it and how much of this is a thing that actually occurs in the wild. Okay. Um, perfect example, I was recently yelling about my dad sent me a paper that one of his work people had sent him as like, you know, proof of why I'm not going to get the vaccine. Oh. Um, and it was a paper that essentially I was very frustrated with it because it was clearly one of these systems where it does not at all mimic actual life. And so then people who were vaccine skeptics were latching onto it as, you know, this is proof that, yeah. you know, the vaccine is going to do something terrible to you. When in reality, I'm like, not only does this paper not say that or show that it's it's a very bad system for showing that this is something that would happen in real life um and so as biologists this is something that we constantly deal with how accurate are our contrived experiments to what we actually observe in the natural world um, which is often why you'll notice the same type of experiment does x do y will be done first in maybe cell culture and then they do more cells and then they do mice um so there's sort of layers that we try to stack on so that one, in, even if one individual study is not so great, there's there's more to it, um, which is not really something you're going to be getting in ancient Babylon. Yeah, that's, right. <laughs> um, that's really well said. I, I like that. Um, uh, and it turns out because it turns out that what we think of as a clearly designed experiment and interpreting the results of an experiment is not easy to do. Um, and it's not always the case that data speaks for itself. Um, so even if we brought a really well-designed experiment to, sh to show the Babylonians that um, Marduk was not in control of the motion of Mars, there's no reason to think that that would impress them or persuade them at all. We're just weirdos sitting there with our right. pieces of metal and glass um, saying words that don't mean anything to them. So here's a question. So the Hanging Gardens of Babylon sounds like a fan. Again, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go look up pictures of this. Um, uh, whoever 
whoever the botanist is who's managing the Hanging Gardens of Babylon must have been an astoundingly talented person, right? Mm -hmm. Surely. Um, and, and in these days, I, those days, I imagine, you know, if you messed up, you're, you get your head cut off, right? <laughs> One of these deals. So worked pretty hard. Um, they must have understood quite a bit about uh, botany, right? About plants. Mm -hmm. um, would this have been an entry point to turning them into um, scientists? Bring um, well, not to be offensive to the botanists, but you can learn a lot about botany um, without using science as we think of it today. Um, right. I gave this plant to Sally yeah. and then she died. Um, I now know something important about botany. Um, that's not really an experiment. Um, that's observation of the world, right? Um, so yeah. presumably if we want there, so, and this, this is a really important thing. It's not to say that the person who designed the Hanging Gardens of Babylon was not smart. Clearly, as you say, a fantastically skilled and intelligent person, yeah. um, but not, but intelligence does not equal science. Mm -hmm. Or and science. I feel like maybe we should bring this in about engineering itself is not intrinsically science. Yeah. So right. engineering, sure. great. That's, you know, science of essentially, well, not the science of, but the practice of building things um, to particular specifications for particular jobs. Um, and so it is in some ways in the modern world an applied science. Uh, so, for example, you know, my dad, who's an RF engineer, knows tons about, you know, radio frequencies and the way that sound works um, and all of that stuff that I can never do. It's a lot of math. Um, but at the same time, at the end of the day, he has to use that to build something. Uh, I am, as a difference as a scientist, usually not building something. I'm trying to find something out. Right. A byproduct is sometimes I may have to build something in order to find something out, but that's sort of just a side part. It's not the whole purpose um, of the job. And so a lot of the what you might think of as ancient science um, is also just a byproduct of building something, that the trial and error of does this work, how do we keep improving on this, mm -hmm. um, which might not be science in the particular way that we expect, although you might be able to say that there is a science to X, Y, or Z thing. Um, the first thing that comes to my mind is like blacksmithing is actually very complicated and has been sort of one of these incredible human exploits of trial and error mm -hmm. um, but is not necessarily intrinsically scientific. Um, so for example, what I'm thinking of is um, Damascus steel um, was known to be like really hard or whatever. And it was kind of just like sort of legendary that the blacksmiths in Damascus could make this. But actually most of the reason why it was so good was actually where they were specifically getting the iron from. Uh, and I forget what other metals were mixed in with it that really helped. Um, but it wasn't like these guys figured out that adding these things in helped. It was sort of a byproduct of trying different iron from different places and finding stuff that was good. So I mm -hmm. guess that would set it apart from now where we actually I think in order to figure this out, we did like some insane uh, imaging or I don't know exactly what we did. Yeah, because things but, like yeah. like good steel. Is, as you say, is because of, you know, layering in individual layers of vanadium on top of our iron and then putting bits of carbon inside. So these are things that we can we can look at quite precisely with tools that we have today. Um, but trying to explain to a Babylon era blacksmith um, the difference between iron and vanadium um, and what a molecular layer is, um, as you might imagine, is hard because this is I think the, the thing we're kind of zooming around a lot here is that high-level ideas like the existence of germs or um, molecules is scaffolded on all sorts of 
uh, other things. Um, uh, things like, so, you know, the microscope, if we build a microscope to um, uh, look at germs, uh, they have to get used to using optical devices. Um, if you've never looked through anything, anything even in the family of a microscope or a telescope before, yeah. it's a totally bizarre device. Um, you know, we in the modern era start using those tools when we're really young, so we're used to it. But I don't know if you can remember the first time, like you tried to use a stereo microscope in, in middle school oh. biology or something like that, uh, and you couldn't see anything. Um, uh, so if you can imagine trying to a whole civilization encountering those things for the very first time, um, uh, it's really challenging. And, you know, one of the my, my favorites. Um, uh, things to teach uh, in my classes is Galileo's first observations with the telescope. Um, so he he points it at the moon and he sees these craters and he says, he writes a whole book, says, look, the, the moon has mountains and craters, so it's like Earth and therefore all these other things come along with that. Um, there's other people who look at the moon through the telescope at exactly the same time and they don't see the craters. They're like, no, the moon is blotchy, but blotchiness isn't a crater. So Galileo has to explain why the patterns of light and dark he's seeing through his telescope are what he thinks they are, um, because it's not obvious what the physical meaning of the raw data is. Um, and interestingly, in the case of Galileo, the, the key difference turns out to be that he was trained in perspective drawing um, as a young man. So he was really good at thinking about things like shadows and foreshortening. And then other people who were looking at the telescope at the time did not have that training. So they weren't able to make those leaps. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, it makes me think of, by the way, uh, you know, when, um, if you go to the Mars, you know, with any of the NASA sites for any of the Mars missions, right, you can, you can look up pages and there are, you know, you'll just see images, and then there's the explanation. The caption has all this information that you would only know by looking at this. Oh, this is a riverbed. This must have been this. This must have been that, because mm -hmm. of the trained planetary geologists who are able to look at these things and understand that that's what it looks like. And in fact, often on those sites, they'll they'll show you another picture of uh, a similar environment on Earth, an analog. Right. They'll say, mm -hmm. "See on Earth, here's something we know more about. This is what a riverbed looks like from the air on Earth. Therefore." This thing on Mars, even though there's no water water anymore, looks pretty much like a riverbed, right? So, yeah. So that's the uh, that's the the trick, right? Is that we sort of have this fantasy that if we download Wikipedia and bring it back to Babylon, <laughs> oh, oh no, then we can reconstruct <laughs> modern science and modern society, and that is not the case. I mean, even if we delete like all the episode summaries of Welcome Back, Cotter, just to to make the <laughs> the download a little lighter. Um, uh, just that information itself is not going to be very helpful. Right? It's this kind of way of thinking about problems. Um, and that is something you can teach, but uh, it's not easy, right? We've got a whole society built around teaching those sorts of things today. Um, so you can't just drop it um, as one piece into a society and expect to get the same kind of thing. Well, actually, it strikes me that what you'd want to do is, as a science communicator, you'd want to get a job as a kindergarten teacher or, you know, as a teacher mm -hmm. in an equivalent of whatever a grade school would be is because you could teach, well, I, you could start, at any, it doesn't matter, you could okay. find someone who's 25 and just say, look, for the next uh, 20 years, I'm going to teach you something. But because that's, if you had that much time, you, you probably could. Um, yeah, that would be a good plan. Yeah. Um, 
uh, because you got to start with the kids, as it were. Um, right. And in fact, this is something in my um, in one of my books, uh, Maxwell's uh, Oxford Church and Maxwell's Demon. Um, I talk about how this happens in the the late nineteenth century, in that um, sort of Darwin's peeps, people like Thomas Henry Huxley, um, want. Um, science teaching to change, to become more, what they saw as, as more modern. Um, so they do write great popular books and such, but that doesn't isn't what changed people's minds. Rather, what they do is they, they propose, kind of for the first time, let's teach little kids about science, um, and then we'll examine them, that is, we'll give them tests to see if they understood the science, and then you'll, and then we'll charge you to, to grade those tests, but that's neither here nor there. Um, um, but that Wait, you charge that the works. student to grade their own test? Yeah. So Huxley and friends had a lot of trouble making money. So they proposed to the government, um, let's make science tests mandatory. Um, and then, you know, you'll need somebody to grade those tests and we'll grade them for you if you pay <laughs> us. That's brilliant. Um, <laughs> sort, of the, sort of what the college board does today. <laughs> right. Um, right, right, right. Um, but then actually within a generation that works, um, because getting them young is a good strategy. Yeah. Yeah. I'm scared. Gabby, do you remember the first time or, you know, among the first, the first, uh, first learning about what science was? I mean, I feel like when you're really young, learning about what science is, is more learning scientific facts. Uh -huh. Um, cause your earliest, I feel like indoctrination to it is more just like this is a scientist person they study blank these are some cool things about blank yeah. um but i was definitely always really in it as a kid i wanted to be a paleontologist up until i was maybe mm. like 11 or 12 um so like dinosaurs and learning about dinosaurs just really fascinated me as a kid and i think one of the things that i definitely developed more of an appreciation for it now is just how much information a paleontologist is able to get out of even just a few bones because yeah. um, sometimes what they get is very jumbled up um, or it's only half of a thing. Um, the information people are able to pull of like, yeah, this had a bit of this in its stomach uh, when it died. was just really cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, is it, so your, your parents didn't send you to any kind of religious school as well. Like I, I was, um, they did briefly cause my dad was more into that. Um, but I kind of kept pissing off the nuns. Um, so yeah, well, how, I didn't really, how did you, um, I don't remember my specific phrasing at the time, but I basically remember telling them that none of this could be real because where are the dinosaurs? Like we have proof that there were dinosaurs. Um, so life didn't start with Adam. Like I got, I got, I was really heated with the nuns. Um, yeah. and eventually I was, my parents were just like, you don't want to do this. Do you? I was like, no, I hate this. And they're like, okay, we'll take you out. Um, yeah, so it was them. more of a yeah. cultural Hey, let's just put her in this because everyone does, and then I just kind of kept button heads with the nuns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I also I, I got sent to what they called Hebrew school, although really is learning Hebrew is a very small part of it. You should yeah. really just call it Jewish school, or as I called it, non-American school. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like everything, wow. but it was it, when you have that real direct clash between literally during the day I'm being taught one thing about this is evolution, this is history, and then at night you're being taught different thing you know um it becomes very clear that oh yeah, i should look at tough. both of these things mm -hmm. you know both of these matt did you did you do you remember learning uh, your first uh, impressions of science what um, it was? yeah actually i did, well i don't know if it was my first or not but something that that sticks with me is actually in second grade um we were learning about buoyancy 
So the, we got these big tanks of water, which of course is very cool for second graders, right? So you yeah. get to splash around and do fun stuff. Yeah. Um, and then a piece of clay. Um, and the, the teacher said, you know, let's uh, imagine what shapes are going to float and what shapes are going to sink. Um, uh, and I remember that day really distinctly of, and then discovering that a bowl shape will float, whereas the same amount of clay in a ball would sink. Um, and that made a real impression on me that you could do that kind of, uh, in modern, uh, in the terms that I would say today, this kind of rigorous approach to answering a question like that. Um, and that that was, and you could learn general things about like why some things floated and why things d didn't um, by messing around with that. And, you know, got to splash in water too. Yeah. That is oh, such a physicist origin story. Yeah. <laughs> like very much opposite ends of the spectrum. I was like, dinosaurs, dinosaurs are cool. And you're like, buoyancy. And now we're in our respective fields. And I think that's very exactly. Um Yeah. So now we just need to build a boat big enough for a dinosaur and we're good to go. Yeah. Sounds good. Mm -hmm. Yes. But did the, did the dinosaurs sail the seas? I, I think that this would be a fantastic movie. Uh, the sailing dinosaurs. Contiki of the uh, dinosaur age. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I remember there was a there's a Bible story, and it's an Old Testament one because that's the one that's the part we were learning um, about. I can't remember who exactly. Somebody um, didn't actually put God to the test. Said, "Look, if you know, it, was, it had something to do with seeing dew on the ground, and then it was like, you know, if God is real, then this dew. I don't know. Hmm, yeah, Basically, don't know there's story. some story, mm -hmm. and I'm sure there's many in the Bible, you know, about putting God to the test. Of course, my takeaway from that was like, oh yeah, that's the right thing to do. Yeah, put it to the test. But in the Bible, it never turned out that the the answer was uh, aha. Therefore, this may not be a supernatural uh, phenomenon. It was always an answer. But uh, I was like, you're so close. You were so close. Um, so, uh, are the you, so you say we've we started a little uh, a little school um, mm -hmm. in Babylon and um, the Stanley School of Science. Um, <laughs> Are, this may be specific to this particular society, I'm not sure, but like, are those kids, when they go home and they tell their parents what they learned, are they going to be in trouble? I know, like, we know that in Galileo's society, he, he could be jailed or house, put under house, you know, very strict rules mm -hmm. against this. Was that true for m most of these science societies or no? Um. Uh, the, I think the short answer, the, 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 proper, the, the proper answer is we don't actually know, right? Our, ah. our knowledge of societies like Babylon is, is pretty fragmentary. Um, but most societies do not rigorously police what you can know or think. And even what we think of as uh, intensely dogmatic societies like Galileo's era of, of the Inquisition um, were actually a lot more relaxed than you might imagine, too. Mm -hmm. right? I mean, Galileo has 20 years of heresy before anybody starts giving him trouble. Um, and then, and then you know, his sentence is to live in his villa. Um, so that's not so bad, right? Yeah. Uh, and there's a wonderful uh, book called The Cheese and the Worms um, by Carlo Ginsberg uh, about... Um, uh, about a farmer who who runs afoul of the Inquisition um, because he has this idea that the universe, instead of being created by God, um, uh, just curdled like cheese. Um, 
and it's it, it so happened the Inquisition kept excellent records, so we have um, detailed <laughs> descriptions of exactly what happens. And this guy who's named Minocchio um, comes up with this idea, and he tells all his friends about it. Um, and the Inquisition comes and visits him and says, you know, where'd you get this idea? And he's like, well, I read this book, and then I made some cheese, and I had this idea. Um, and basically, Inquisition visits him for um, I don't know something like thirty years, like essentially his entire adult life. Um, before he actually gets arrested. Wait, they, um, they just keep stopping by periodically? Yeah, they're just like, you know, you shouldn't be talking so much about cheese. And he's like, whatever, I'm going to talk about cheese. Um, <laughs> and the Inquisition is <laughs> not happy about it. But even, so the the the, the sort of notion of like a, a thought control state is a very modern one. It's really a 20th century innovation. And we kind of project it back into the past. Um and that's, and that's not to say you couldn't get in trouble for saying things that people didn't like. I'm sure if one of the results of one of our experiments was to say that uh, the king was smelly or something, right? The king was a source of disease. That would probably be oh, a wow. good one for getting us, us executed. Yeah. Right. So it's, yeah. it's not like this is a place of free thought. Um, but... Uh, um, uh, but no. So, and if we, you know, if we choose carefully, we'll choose a place that does have sort of a marketplace of, of different sorts of ideas, um, uh, and, and put our, our crazy ideas about invisible things that cause disease, um, out into the field. Indeed. Indeed. I did always think that, you know, if we went a slightly different route, it might be kind of easy to sort of cloak our ideas within whatever the mythos of the area is to avoid uh, certain amounts of heresy and get towards, yeah, I don't yeah. know, atomic priesthood. I don't know if people are familiar with this idea. Uh, There's an idea proposed of, you know, how do you warn people in the future about, like, sites of radioactive waste and stuff like that. And one mm -hmm. of the ideas was, like, an atomic priesthood um, that essentially keeps the lore of why this place is terrible. Um, but essentially, kind of inspired off that, you know, we could have some sort of I don't know, mysticism slash science going on, where, of course, yeah, we know what's really going on and we're trying our best to, to translate it. Um, mm -hmm. But often in science communication, you have to try to find a framework where people understand you. And if we don't have the scaffolding of all of these other years of scientific progress, and if we can't build a microscope to show, hey, there are these physical things, well, if there's already lore enough about, you know, evil disease-causing spirits, but in the lore they just sort of float around, and we could say, oh, no, no, they live specifically in water that you happen to poop in, so don't <laughs> poop in the well water. Um, mm -hmm. You know, maybe we might be able to influence it that way. Yeah, that's also, great. And that's... Oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> oh, no, I was going to say, side note, 20 Years of Heresy, great band name. Continue. Oh, that is a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I say there's some, some classic um, science fiction investigations of this, too. Um, so Canticle for Leibowitz is a wonderful Cold War era uh, book that imagines precisely this, that after a, a nuclear war, scientific knowledge gets preserved by monks, essentially, by these, ah. by these religious groups. And they try to make sense of it. And the, the, the novel spans a long period of time. Um, trying to investigate sort of this question, what does it mean to have a scientific priesthood? Um, and then I think the other classic example would be Asimov's foundation, um, mm -hmm. in which they're aware of this scaffolding problem, and they know it will take 10,000 years to reintroduce civilization to a collapsed galaxy. So okay. they organize it that way. So that is the point of the foundation, is to slowly make these changes. Um, and they, you know, their, their shtick is that 
yeah, if they if they do this the right way, it'll take ten thousand years to rebuild civilization instead of a hundred thousand. Um, but they have to have that super long term vision. Um, so those are those are fun explorations of, yeah. of that idea. Very cool. And uh, and just to to wrap up the uh, the challenge here, Gabby, you made a very great point there about being willing to play the role of translator. Um, I think for for scientists, and this kind of gets back to this science talk uh, conference is going on, um, you know, a big part of science communication. There, there are people like me who are not scientists at all, and therefore I'm cool with storytelling and you know, using whatever means it takes to speak to people. But actual scientists, um, many of them find it incredibly difficult to be loosey-goosey about what it is they want to explain. Like, no, they, like, they'd be terrified to try to use local myths to explain something they understand. You know I mean? Gabby, that must be, like, in your world, that would be, I imagine that's common. It's hard to, to find people who are willing to do that. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely one thing, too, where when, when you're a scientist, you kind of forget how much of your, just the regular things you talk about and you speak about are just not, comprehensible at all to most people. Uh, I run into this a lot just telling my partner what I did today at work. Um, and he's exceedingly patient. And But I can tell when I've said too many words too fast that <laughs> I just have not defined. What would a um, sentence, what would an example sentence be like? I, I can't even think of something, but just like think about like genes versus genome or something like that, where, or, mm -hmm. you know, we have specific words that mean a specific thing and you can kind of generally get the gist, but where I'm using one versus the other eventually becomes important. Um, and it's just, you know, that particularly fine slice of meaning uh, that might get lost. And sometimes I just get too excited and I definitely know I techno babble. Um, <laughs> but it, it's just something that, you know, once you're in a field, you do and you kind of don't even realize it like in a conversation with a, you know another scientist in my lab working on something we might be completely incomprehensible to the person I, I remember the first talk I actually ever went to was my PI speaking and I think it was like my first week in the lab I just I was an undergrad I just got you know picked up and they were like oh well you know Lori's giving a talk in this other building let's go I understood not a single word for an hour oh, wow interesting and that was me who had already you know you know knew I was going into science, had taken th three months worth of science classes, and, you know, I was a second semester freshman, but I was probably more scientific than the average person at that point in time, and it still just sure. completely blindsided me. I didn't understand anything, yeah. Um, yeah. and it's like that. <laughs> That's awesome. That's, That's great. Awesome. Yeah. Um, well, fantastic. Now, we, we woke up again suddenly in, in the 21st century, and here we are um, with dreams of technobabble we spewed all over Babylon. And um, as, as usual with these uh, thought experiments, I feel like we just barely scratched the surface there, the challenge. But I think it, it, uh, it'd be exciting drawing up that curriculum um, for the sure. uh, kids mm -hmm. of Babylon. But it would take a while. I think uh, getting to, what's it called, Common Core? No, <laughs> yeah, well, we don't want to actually get to the Common Core. but OK, right, right. Um, that would be an incredible challenge. Um, a long way coming. So um, wonderful. Uh, any, any of you who've been listening, uh, if you have ideas, what is what would you teach if you woke up in ancient Babylon? How would you try to convey some sci some idea of science, get them to be thinking more along scientific terms? What would you do? Um, uh, that 
brings me back to, uh, speaking of the audience, to the mailbag. Oh boy, it's been a long time since we've had the mailbag music. Uh, our longtime listener um, and super ifer Robert uh, wrote in and said, uh, speaking of our episode, our previous episode where we talked about daylight savings time, uh, where Gabby was uh, hoarding light, actually hoarding actual light. Um, and uh, Robert says, I was surprised you did not talk about the darkness caused by people storing daylight and others nearby complaining. So what is, the scenario there is he's imagining uh, you hoarding light meant that other people were left in darkness. Mm -hmm. And then they're complaining, my neighbor stole all my light. Yeah, uh, that seems all but inevitable. Yeah. Yeah, I think the um, what do they call those? What are those groups in, in the suburbs or you know the housing? Oh, like homeowners associations. Homeowners yeah. association. <laughs> the <laughs> rules on light hoarding uh, would be uh, uh, intense. Um, thank you, Robert, for uh, for writing in. And uh, anybody, you can email us at feedback at whattheif dot com. You can go to just go to our website whattheif dot com. Send us your ideas, uh, thoughts, musings. If you have an idea for a show that we end up doing. Uh, you become a super iffer, um, so keep those coming. Also, uh, I want to mention we are part of a we have a membership program now called uh, uh, with a service called Patreon, P A T R E O N, Patreon.com slash What the If. You can go there and you can uh, find out how to sign up and get all kinds of perks, uh, T-shirts, mugs, um, goblets of fire. Mm. Also known as a mug, um, <laughs> uh, and uh, hoodies, you know, all kinds of stuff. So um, a hoodie would be fun. You could wear like the hoodie and put the hood over, and you'd be like a Jedi of the If. You know, that'd be kind of cool. Um, mm. We, uh, I want to give uh, oh a shout out to all our new members. I will do that next time. I'll get all your names together. Um, but we just had someone someone just joined at the fifty dollar level. Uh, tremendously grateful for that. So um, thank you all for joining. Patreon.com slash what the if. Um, you uh, joined at different levels, uh, different amount of money um, per month, and uh, you get all kinds of different rewards depending on what you get. So, And it helps us tremendously. It helps us do what we love doing, really, which is this science education. Science education while having fun and occasionally traveling through time and uh, messing up the, uh, the whole space-time continuum thing. So um, there's that. Thank you all for, for your support there. Uh, Gabby, is there anything you'd like to plug? Nope. Apparently unplugged. Unplugged. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the mailbag is... Thank you, guys. Sorry, I didn't know you were still there. I opened the door to the, uh, to the uh, studio there, and they were still yeah, rocking you along. You can't just let them in like that. You, no. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you all. The check's in the mail. Um, Matt, anything you'd like to plug? Uh, no, nothing pluggable at the moment. Nothing pluggable. All right. Gabby, would you help us set up um, the ritual that this strange society we have here um, practices at the end of every uh, if experiment? Yeah. As we are super frustrated trying to build this microscope with cloudy, brittle glass <laughs> and absolutely tearing our hair out trying to design a curriculum for Babylonian kindergartners, we cannot help but shout... 
What? what? The Thank you all for listening. Let Babylon rise again. Or at least see if you can get there as a tourist. I, that's, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm putting that on my bucket list, by the way. Babylon. Uh, modern day, ancient, whichever one I can get to first would be great. Thank you all for listening. Support us at Patreon. Patreon.com slash what they have. Thank you. And we will see you all next week. Bye.